Welcome to this week's edition of Good Books Radio. Audiobooks.com is the chief underwriter for Good Books Radio, which is produced by UTRGV Media Services for Rio Grande Valley Public Radio. And now, here's your host, Dr. W.F. Strong. Welcome to Good Books Radio. I'm your guest host today, W.F. Strong, and I'm sitting in for Dr. John Cook, who is away on his honeymoon. Yes, that's right. He's on his honeymoon. Uh, By the time this airs, he will certainly be back, but uh, he asked me to sit in just for old time's sake, and I'm happy to be here. We're going to be talking today to best-selling author of the book Drive and to Sell as Human. We're going to talk to Daniel Pink about his new book, Win. Yeah, that's the name of it, Win, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. This is a new book that shows how timing affects everything, from work to home to school, and that it is a science, not an art. To be featured on the cover of the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post, Wired, Men's Health, Harvard Business Review, etc., uh, this book has to be spectacular to have that kind of prominence, and it is. I found it a great read. I found it inspirational. I found it potentially life-changing because, again, timing is everything. Here is a review from Publishers Weekly. It says, Pink should change many people's understanding of timing with this book, which provides insights from little-known scientific studies in a very accessible way. By the book's end, readers will be thinking much more carefully about how they divide up their days, how they organize their routines. Booklist says that this book is helpful, it is inspiring, and it is thoughtful. Kirkus Reviews says that it is solid science backed by sensible action points. So I think you'll find this book really wonderful, and I think you'll find uh, the interview with Daniel Pink also uh, illuminating. He's on the phone now, so let's talk to him. First of all, there's a book I read about uh, some time ago, I think it's probably 25 years old, and the book was called Don't Buy a Car Made on Monday. You ever, <laughs> you ever heard of that? I have not heard uh, of that. It's a funny uh, title, though. Yeah, yeah, it was. But the idea at the time was that, uh, you know, people coming to work on the line on Monday, hungover or tired, uh, didn't do their best work on Monday. So you wanted to buy a car uh, made on Wednesday or Thursday or something like that. Uh, so, uh, you know, in, in your book, you talk a lot about, uh, uh, you know, the evolution of, of uh, good work uh, in the day, during the week, etc. So uh, what do you have to say about that? You know, I, I, I have a definitive I don't know on that one. Mm-hmm. Um, the um, um, there is the the the, day, the effect of days of the week on our performance is a little bit. The evidence there is a, is a, is a tad murky. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that um, there, uh, and also the the car making process takes place over multiple days and multiple people. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'd be a little bit skeptical of that one. Uh, what we do know is that people on Mondays are more likely to start positive behavior change. So we know mm-hmm. that Mondays operate as what researchers call a fresh start date, mm-hmm. where um, uh, they're more people are more likely to uh, start going to the gym, more likely to uh, begin a new diet, more likely to begin a new uh, dedicated regime at work. 
So, um, so there are some virtues to Mondays. Well, I think uh, when this was written, of course, was when most of the work done on the line was done by people, <laughs> you know, not by robots. Yeah, right, right, right. Actually, there are fewer people operating there. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And it's interesting. It's an interesting point. So one of the things that we know about the science of timing is that there are certain times of day we were better at certain kinds of work. Mm-hmm. And so we move through the day in this period of, a, you know, sort of stages of a peak, a trough, a recovery. And uh, we're better off doing our analytic work during the mornings, and typically uh, during our peak, which is most people in the morning. And actually, if you look at uh, uh, what actually goes on on the lines of, of auto plants now, a lot of the work is fairly analytic. You have fewer people with grease on their on their uh, uniforms mm-hmm. uh, turning screws and many more people who are programming computers. What about for writers like you? Is it best in the morning? You know, it depends on what your chronotype is. Um, you know, your chronotype is your propensity to wake up early and go to sleep early or wake up late and go to sleep late. Um, I, you know, writing is mostly analytic work. So, um, so for someone like me who is not a strong lark but a mild lark, um, my work, I get, I get more writing. I, I always do my writing in the morning. In fact, this particular book, I probably wrote 90% of the words in this book um, uh, in the, uh, before noon. Before noon, Okay. But yeah, that, that's yeah. fairly common for writers. Aren't most writers kind of the, you know, the four o'clock in the morning to noon? I mean, I've talked to a lot of writers, and that's very common. Yeah, 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 sure. No, uh, it depends. I, I do think that is a fairly common pattern, and I think that a lot of writers have figured, have figured out these, these, these patterns of the day and how they can, and how they can do better work. Um, there's actually a really interesting book that I write about in my own book. It's a book called Daily Rituals, by, um, edited by a guy named um, uh, Mason Curry, who looked at the work habits of artists, not only writers, but uh, visual artists, musicians, inventors. And we actually did, for, for my book, we did an analysis of, of some of those schedules. And what we found is that about two-thirds of the people followed this kind of schedule, exactly as you're saying, mm-hmm. where they do their, you know, they, they do their, their main work in the morning, they... they Take a little bit of a break in the afternoon, and then it, then they kind of return. They return to it in the uh, late afternoon and uh, late afternoon and early evening, mm-hmm. um, and that seems to be a fairly common pattern for a lot of people doing that kind of heads down uh, that kind of heads down work. Yes, actually, I, I was reading um, about Mark Twain recently, and he said that uh, he wrote early in the morning, five to nine or so. And then he would have breakfast, and then he would answer letters, and then in the in the afternoon he would come back to it and edit it, and then often yeah would... yeah that's 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 fairly common, mm-hmm. and 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 so and that's very consistent with what we know about mm-hmm. the change in our performance over mm-hmm. uh, the span of a day. Mm-hmm. And you know the interesting thing about all of this is that it makes a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, research shows that time of day effects explain about twenty percent of the variance in human performance on these workplace tasks. So getting, doing the right task at the right time uh, can make a huge difference in our productivity and our creativity. That's fascinating. Now, we're at the beginning of the year, and a lot of yep. people, of course, uh, as you note in the book, a lot of people, and, and everybody knows this, they, they select the first of the year to make great changes to make uh, to create a new you. <laughs> and, yes, uh, exactly. And so we're at the point now at about the third week where people begin failing or noticing that they're <laughs> they're not going to make it, right? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, what do they need to do to uh, get the timing right? Uh, well, there are some things. Um, uh, there are some things that um, that we can do to essentially reboot. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so that we have other chances to to make a fresh start. And this is a phenomenon known as the uh, as the as the fresh start as the fresh start effect. And what um, what it shows is that all days of the year are not created equal. That there's some days where we're going to be more likely and more capable of starting a new regime, a new diet, a new exercise, mm-hmm. something like that. Um, and so certainly the big kahuna and all of that is New Year's Day. But there are other fresh start dates, um, plenty of them. Some mm-hmm. of them are shared. So um, you're more likely to start a new regime on, a, to say, the first of the month rather than the 13th of a month. Uh, better off doing it on a Monday rather than on a, a Friday. Uh-huh. Um, but there are also personal dates. So do it on the day after your birthday rather than the day before. Uh, and and um, and what this allows us to do, what these fresh start dates allow us to do, is essentially, as I said, reboot. Uh, another metaphor would be to think about a ledger. You know, at the beginning of a quarter, at the beginning of a new year, businesses open up a fresh ledger. These fresh start dates allow us to open up, in a sense, a fresh ledger on ourselves, and that can actually change our performance pretty significantly. Does it help to keep um, um, a ledger, so to speak, a, a journal? That's an interesting, you know, it's a, it's a great point. It's a great point. Um, I, I think there is something to be said for observing our daily patterns. And actually in this book, I have a, a, a little worksheet that people can use to, you know, write down how they're feeling at different times of the day and try to track their own patterns. As I said, this pattern of peak trough recovery universally is, is pretty strong. Uh, it doesn't mean that my peak is going to occur exactly at, at the time of your peak or mm-hmm. my trough at your trough. And so I think it's a very good point that if we're observant about our own behavior, our own mood, our own performance, uh, we can make small tweaks to do things a little bit smarter and better. I remember when I was in my late 20s and I was uh, kind of on a multifaceted self-improvement plan and I had this month. <laughs> I had this uh, mantra for myself, uh, the best I can be by decade three. You know, by the time I get 30, I like that. <laughs> by the time I get to be 30, I want to be able to, you know, run five miles. I want to bench press 220. You know, I had all these goals and that was my mantra. The best I can be and, by and decade three. And how did you three. fare on that? Oh, I did great. I did great because yeah. I, I had a, I had a focus. I kept a journal about my, uh, achievement, um, uh, now, after I hit 30, I fell apart, but, you know, by the time I got there, I was doing well. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Well, this reminds me of, of some other research I write in the book mm-hmm. about uh, about marathons. Mm-hmm. Uh, the age at which people are most likely to run their mar- first marathon is age 29, mm-hmm. and it's for exactly that reason. Again, another temporal, time-based aspect of our lives that, um, that when we see a decade ending, uh, it's more likely to energize us. So mm-hmm. people are disproportionately likely to run their first marathon at ages 29. 39, 49, 59. 49-year-olds are three times likelier to run a first marathon than (laughs) 50-year-olds. I remember reading that, and uh, and that's what made me think of my own, you know, decade yeah. three mantra. Because I said, "Well, how interesting!" But you've got the rhyming like thing going on, so that's huge. Yeah, that's yeah. helpful. Yeah, you got to have it rhyme, and otherwise, it doesn't have oh, real yeah. power. <laughs> yeah. Now, here's another one that I thought of: is uh, you know, when it comes to romance, uh, you know, how many guys have been uh, put off by a woman that they are carrying a torch for when she says, "Well, you know, the timing's not right. I'm just not ready mm. for." a serious relationship uh, right now and so the timing 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 always comes up in love and romance yeah yeah and that's a that's a this is a trickier this is a trickier subject there is um there is some research on this uh, particularly about 
the age at which you get married and the likelihood of getting divorced. There's, mm-hmm. there's research on the University of Utah showing that there is a kind of a sweet spot between the ages of about 25 and 32. Mm-hmm. That if you get married between that window, your odds of getting a divorce are slightly lighter, li- lower than at other times. So there's actually a big difference believe it or not, between 24-year-olds and 25-year-olds, uh, people who get married at 24 are 11% more likely to get to divorce than people who get married at 25. Now, that said, we're talking about the margins here. So, you mm-hmm. know, if you get married at age 34, 44, it doesn't mean that your marriage is doomed. Right, right. Um, but there, is, there, there seems to be something in that sweet spot of, uh, of timing of marriage. How interesting. Well, I, I don't think I'll use it at the next wedding toast, but... Uh, <laughs> 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 well, think... yeah, especially if they're outside the window. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, so, oh, well, you, you guys are both 37 years old, which means statistically you have a slightly higher chance of divorce, but good luck. <laughs> Well, it could be fun. The um, yeah, uh, I was thinking of the old. Um, I guess it, it's a kind of Spanish proverb that the the perfect uh, match for for uh, a man in terms of again timing is that uh, you take the man's age divided by half and add seven, and that's how old his bride should be. Huh. You ever heard that? That one. That I haven't heard that one. I'm pretty skeptical of that uh, one. Well, I just, let, me, let me just do it for you. So the the 30-year-old guy with the 22-year-old girl is a good match and that they because he's at a point in his life uh, a time when he has finally become mature in guy terms and she uh-huh, is uh-huh, and she's uh-huh. already there, you know. She's already that mature and so they're they're at a a time when they're well matched. That's the thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't seen any research on that. I'd be a little bit skeptical of I'd be a little bit skeptical of that one. Although where it does have some science to it is when we look at uh chronotype and age. Mm-hmm. And what we find it, what what you find is is that um you know when you when we're really little little kids are very morning oriented. They're larks. Mm-hmm. But when you get to about age 14, Tell me about people it. become they, people become much more um owly. Teenagers are, you know, late chronotypes. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't and it? Then, and then uh, around age 24, we start to get larkier again on a slow path, you know, for the rest of our lives. But it turns out that, 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 that women are larkier than men, and women return to larkiness faster than men. So you often have couples who are the same age, uh, where the man has the man has a later chronotype than the wo- the heterosexual couples, where the man has a later chronotype than the woman, mm. and what that sh- what that what that means is that you know I'm the same age as my wife, and I usually go to sleep you know an hour later, mm. and and so if you marry, but on the other hand, because our chronotype changes over time, the compatible sleeping partners are where the men is the man is actually uh, a bit older than the woman. Uh, they end up being very much in sync in terms of their chronotypes in their sleeping time. So maybe that's where it came from. Maybe so. It's a very old uh, proverb. It's been around for centuries. So yeah. Uh, and of course, it might have made sense two centuries ago. Things right. <laughs> maybe are, have changed a bit. You know, the uh, here, here's another one that I wrote down just to just to bounce around a bit. The um, this is from an author who said that what makes a book good is reading it at the right time in your life. Mm. And so like your book comes along for uh, many people who are looking at their, you know, the new year and the new uh, diet that they're on or whatever and how timing is important. And it comes along at a time when they can really pay attention to it and get the greatest good from it, perhaps. 
Well, I like to think that about my own book. I, I think it's a, I think that's actually a lovely proverb, and I, and I, I don't know research on it, but but the um, I, I've seen that many times in in my own life where yes. there's certain there's certain books where maybe I even try to read it, I start it, and I just don't get into it, and then literally like a couple of years later, pick it up, and it ends up being very meaningful to me. Isn't that so, true? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that's a very interesting. I think it's a very interesting uh, phenomenon. Um, I don't. I don't really have a good sense scientifically why that would be the case. But mm-hmm. I, but but anecdotally in my own life, I've seen it many times. Well, there's also something to be said. There's also something to be said. This is. Uh, I had a professor in college once who assigned us to read Huckleberry Finn, mm-hmm. and everybody in you know in every American high school student has read Huckleberry Finn. So you know, here we are in college. We're thinking like, okay, we got to do some serious stuff. And he assigns Huckleberry Finn, and, and everybody goes, eh. uh. and 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 he says something that are, that is stuck with me to this day. He said, um, "You've read this book, but you haven't read this book." Meaning that you're a different person yes. now than you were when you first mm-hmm. read it, and your experience of reading this novel is going to be different because you have become a different person, mm-hmm. even if it's only four or five years later. Well, he might have gotten that from Twain himself because Twain said that you should read every classic work uh, five or six times in your life because it'll always be a different oh, book. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yes, that's true. But but I agree. Yeah. I agree with him. I agree with you, Twain. <laughs> Wherever it comes from, it's absolutely true that it's, yeah, it's yeah. a different book. And so the, a lot of our classic works are classic to us. Uh, you know, we should reread. So the timing gives it its value. Yes, Absolutely. Here's another saying I like. Uh, comedy is tragedy plus time. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah, that's, I, I like that one. I like that one, too. Um, again, on the science, I'm not, um, I'm not so sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, although there is some interesting research on how people perceive time. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that comes up in the research on nostalgia, which is you know, looking at the past, uh, awe, which has this effect of stopping us in time, is that while we we'd like to talk about living in the present, it seems like uh, that the source of meaning in our lives, according to some very interesting research that I read about in the final chapter of the book, is our ability to integrate the present with the past, the past with the future, the present with the future. That is, living in the present is, you know, in, in sort of the Buddhist meditative way can be helpful. Mindfulness and all that have very strong effects. But that the source of meaning comes from integrating the past, the present, and the future. And so this idea that, that, that comedy is tragedy plus time, to me, is, is actually akin to integration of the past, present, and future that seems to be a source of deep meaning and, and purpose. Yeah, in my job as a college professor, I'm I'm often uh, trying to help students understand that that uh, this thing that seems so tragic right now, uh, one day uh, will be amusing to them. Right. Sometimes, yeah, uh, yeah. often, not but, always. <laughs> no, not always, not always. Yeah. But but uh, sometimes the things that seem like a great tragedy now will be in the future uh, amusing. Uh, and absolutely. I'll, that doesn't Absolutely always solve right. the pain at this moment, but nope. <laughs> but I mean, I think of my own case of uh, seventh grade, you know, a girl, uh, um, I, I had written her a, a beautiful love letter and, and, she, oh boy. and she tore it up <laughs> in front of others. Ouch. And, uh, you know, so it was a tragedy at the time, but now it's amusing. It's a, it's a funny thing that I cared that much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The... Uh, 
there in in the study of chronemics, they they often divide time into uh, man's time and God's time. Uh, man's time obviously being the clock time and uh, God's time being nature's time, the tides, the seasons, etc. Um, and a lot of people get stressed out because they're on uh, man's time and living on man's time and living by the corporate time. Do you have any perspective on that? On how you uh, yeah, there's some, there's, yeah, no, there's, there's, uh, there's different cultures have different, different cultures have different approaches to time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you, you, so, so, you know, Western cultures have very much a, um, uh, 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 clock time focus and other cultures have much more of a social time focus. So mm-hmm. they're less punctual, uh, they're less tied to what the clock on the wall says. Um, and so I, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's interesting. I think what we're trying to do in all of our life is in some ways synchronize, synchronize between what does the clock time say? Uh, what does the clock on the wall say? But what do other elements of time, what does cultural time tell us? What does, as you say, what does God's time tell us? One of the things I like about the title of your book and your discussion of it is that uh, too often we're not asking when. We're asking what and how and other things where the magic question is when. Uh, absolutely right. What what um, what um, what it shows, is, and I think what's going on, is that we take questions of what we do, who we do it with, how we do it very seriously, but we relegate these questions of when to, you know, secondary issues, and they're not. They're actually really important in our performance, in our happiness, uh, in our health. Is there anything in the research about, you know, because college students worry about this. They talk to me about it a lot, and they'll, they'll say, you know, I'm not sure that I should be in college right now. I'm not sure this is the time that I should be, you know, doing this. And uh, sometimes I'll say, you know, given your attitude and, and your youthful spirit, <laughs> I, I think it might be best for you just to take a backpack and, and hike around Europe for a year. Uh, that might be a better use of your time yeah. in, in this uh, when you're 21 or 22. Uh, I think there's something to that. I, I, I have a 21 year old daughter, and, mm-hmm. and 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 her advisor in college uh, has given her uh, some. She's gotten great advice from a lot of um, mentors, and uh, well, one of her her actual her her major advisor, um, the head of the department that she's in, um, has advised her to. And I love this. It's like, do something you'll tell your grandchildren about. Oh, that's good. That's good. Yeah, that's a really good one. I think that's excellent. I wish someone had told me, given me that advice. <laughs> that's good. I guess I still have time. I don't have grandchildren. But. <laughs> yes, you still have time. But one of my favorite personal sayings is something I say to, to um, everybody when they're going through some angst about things. I say, one of, uh, the greatest tragedy in life is thinking it's too late. Yes, I agree with that. That people don't do things and think that well, I'm too old for that, or or, or it's right. too, it's too late for me to go to medical school. I'm 30, so it's over. Right. <laughs> no, that's preposterous. I mean, I might have thought that when I was 30. Looking at it now from the vantage point of my early 50s, I think that's insane. Mm-hmm. Oh yes, yes, absolutely true. And another uh, another example of the point that you make earlier that uh, we are locked into perspective by our age and our time. Right. Exactly. Exactly. In. Um, See, when, when I was uh, a young guy about in my late 20s, I worked in, um, I sold drugs uh, legally in pharmaceuticals. <laughs> and, uh, uh-huh. and I remember asking the, uh, you know, when I was new to the business, I remember asking the regional uh, manager, I said, what's the secret to being good at this? And he said, uh, 
the secret is in having the right story for the right person at the right time. Interesting, yeah. I think that's probably true. I think that's probably true. And so in your studies um, of, of marketing and that sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it shows, you know, there, there are, um, there's some good research on, um, you know, on, on decision-making. And so uh, a lot of times when the decision-makers, they have a default decision, okay? So default decision in most cases is not to buy. Default decision is not to give you a raise. Default decision is not to contribute to your charity. Mm-hmm. And what the research shows is that people, decision-makers, are, are somewhat more likely to overcome that default, um, to sort of change the default decision early in the day rather than later in the day and after breaks rather than before breaks. Hmm. So there's something to the actual timing of those kinds of things that is, um, um, that is uh, really, really significant. A lot of your book focuses on how to uh, make team timing better and more effective and, and how to use timing to make people work in uh, concert more effectively. Yes. So what, what, uh, sure, there's some really good. There's some really good. There's some really good stuff on that about how do how do groups synchronize in time with each other? How do people synchronize in time with each other? And this is true for lunch deliverers. This is true for choirs. This is true for um, rowing teams. And what the uh, and so if you if you unpack this, you begin to see you begin to see some um, pretty strong effects of or pretty pretty consistent rules about how groups manage to synchronize in time. Uh, what I think is remarkable about this research on synchronization, and I'll use choral singing as an example of it, the research on choral singing is mind-blowing. You, choral singing is about as good for us as, as exercise. Choral mm-hmm. singing um, uh, raises pain thresholds. It, 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 it improves our immune response. It has a huge mood-boosting effect. Uh, you know, uh, it can be a prophylactic against depression. Mm-hmm. I, and this is not singing per se. It's singing right. in a group. In a group, right. Um, and, and and it also uh, it also uh, enhances our feelings of of meaning of purpose. It, it even synchronous activities of all kinds, including choirs, uh, make us behave better. We're more likely to do a good deed. We're more likely to help somebody out. We're more likely to collaborate. We're more likely to be open to someone who doesn't look like us. And so there's something very powerful about synchronizing in time with other people. And there's a virtuous circle here too. And that syncing with other people makes us feel good and do good. But feeling good and do good makes it easier for us to synchronize, which makes us better at synchronizing, which makes us feel good again and do good again. And so there's a virtuous, there's a virtuous circle of, of, of synchronization there. But I was really, uh, the one aspect of this book that, that really rocked me back on my heels is, is how powerful the effects are of singing in a choir, uh, something that, had, uh, re- that really boggled my mind. So are you singing in a choir now? I am not, but I would consider it. I would never <laughs> consider that before. And now, uh, if I can find a choir to take me, I would consider it. Can you sing? No. Uh-huh. But in a choir, you know, you're... Uh, I, can, my, I figure everybody else will draw out my bad voice. That's right. Your weaknesses get covered. Yes, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> well, listen, I know you have another interview to get to. Uh, timing is everything. So uh, <laughs> I want to thank you so much for giving us your time to talk about this. I actually, I had read your book Drive and I saw this come across Thanks. my desk and I said, I have to talk to him. As a big, All right, fantastic. Big, well, I'm glad you did, Bill. I enjoyed the conversation. It's been, been my great honor. We've been talking today with Daniel H. Pink about his book, Win, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. As you can see, he is a kind of inspirational speaker. He's been on TED Talks many, many times. And uh, this book, as I pointed out, has been 
very, very powerfully and uh, wonderfully reviewed by all the usual major sources. Again, Publishers Weekly said that this book is like discovering your favorite professor in a box. (laughs) It is a frothy blend of utility and entertainment, says Bloomberg, and it is radical, it is surprising, and it is undeniably true, says Forbes. I'm W.F. Strong signing off for Good Books Radio. As always, I'm hoping that all your books are good reads. (laughs) 